What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Sadka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is President Biden just came back from a trip to Europe, to the border of Ukraine, and he gave a major speech in Warsaw. And there was a huge kerfuffle over the fact that he said that Putin can't remain in power, that he ad-libbed these words. And this is all that anyone's been talking about. And what you're hearing is he gave such a wonderful speech and this overshadowed it. And what a gaffe this is and all the rest of it. Number one, we get into whether it was a gaffe or not. I happen to think that it wasn't. But it's overshadowed something else that didn't appear in the speech, a word that didn't appear in his speech anyway, which is victory. The president of the United States has yet to say the famous words of Ronald Reagan when he described what the end of the Cold War looked like. We win, they lose, <laughs> right? We've gone from thinking that every day, can Ukraine survive another day, to seeing that Russia can't win this war, that they are in a stalemate, they're in a quagmire that they can't get out of, and that actually Ukraine can not only survive this war, they can defeat Vladimir Putin. And we have yet to make the strategic shift or set that as an objective in this war. It's obviously the objective of the Ukrainians, but it doesn't seem like U.S. policy has caught up with where the situation is on the ground, Danny. What do you think? You've heard me say this again and again, and you'll hear me say it as well in our talk with our guests. We have been on our back foot since the beginning, and I fail to understand why. And it's not just the Biden administration. We can go back at least 10 years here looking at Russia's aggression, looking at our willingness to invite Russia into Syria, looking at our quiescence at Russia's assault and then annexation of the Crimea. And it is really mysterious to me why we have failed to understand what kind of an enemy Russia and Vladimir Putin personally represents. So let's start back right where you started, which is Joe Biden said those words. And you know what? The more I've thought about it, the more A, I agree with him, and B, I'm insulted by the fact that his paid unelected staff has gone about trying to damage control what the president of the United States has said. I agree with you 100%. First of all, the key word you just said is unelected. Nobody elected these people to set U.S. policy. The president of the United States sets U.S. policy. His staff doesn't set policy. They make recommendations to him, but he's the one who sets policy. And the fact is that clearly what he said was unscripted and unplanned, and he probably could have said it better. I will say that. He could have made clear that we are not planning. Everyone went off on a tangent saying, oh my God, he's called for regime change, which has become the buzzword for we're going to invade Russia, just like we invaded Iraq or something like that, which no one is thinking about or planning to do. So it was unscripted. But you know what? When the president says something unscripted, it's policy. When the president says something, that's the policy of the United States. It is now, because of what Joe Biden said, the policy of the United States that Vladimir Putin should go. When Barack Obama was president in 2012, he was giving a press conference and he was being asked about the use of chemical weapons in Syria. And he said that for me, 
a red line for military intervention would be is if they use chemical weapons. And his staff freaked out. They were shocked. It was unplanned. It was unexpected. But they fell in line and said, "Okay, we've got a red line now. President said it. It's policy. And they didn't enforce the policy. That's a problem. But from that point on, the next day, the White House press secretary went and said, yep, president said that that's a red line. And they stuck with it. So when a president says something unscripted or off the cuff, it's not the job of the staff to walk it back and say that what he really meant to say was this and make absurd statements like saying that what he really meant was that Putin cannot exercise power over the region. That's insulting to your listeners. Everybody heard what he said. He said Putin can't stay in power. So I'm flabbergasted by the entire episode. What worries me here, though, is that we really just don't have any strategy. We've had such a tactical approach to this challenge. And I don't know if any of our listeners saw that Arnold Schwarzenegger video that he made addressed to the Russian people. I loved it. Now, I've always liked Arnold Schwarzenegger. I confess it's a weakness. But it was a wonderful video because it divided the Russian people from Vladimir Putin. He said, you know, I love you. His first bodybuilding hero was a Russian, and he really drove a wedge between the Russian people and its leadership. And I haven't seen any government doing that in Europe or in the United States. I haven't seen anyone as eloquently articulate the fact that this man is an enemy, not simply to Ukraine, not simply to NATO, but also to his own people. We know that upwards of 15,000 Russian soldiers have died in just four and a half weeks in Ukraine. It is a travesty. That doesn't even begin to talk about the number of Syrians who died at his hands, who died at the hands of Russian soldiers ordered there. It doesn't begin to count the number of, of others throughout Africa, where the Wagner Group, Putin's mercenaries have operated. We need to be much, much more serious about dividing the Russian people from Vladimir Putin, isolating him, stigmatizing him, and working towards getting rid of him. What the White House should have said after Biden made that ad lib was to not only support it, but expand on it and add context and say what the president was saying was that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal who has illegally invaded a sovereign nation and targeted innocent men, women and children with banned weapons. And he is now an international pariah and there is no way back for him to the good graces of the world. And the decision of who the president of Russia is belongs with the Russian people, and they should free Alexei Navalny and hold free elections so the Russian people can decide who their leader is. But as long as Vladimir Putin is the leader of Russia, then Russia will be a pariah state and a rogue state on the international stage. And add the context. Basically, what we're saying is it's up to the Russian people whether Putin's the president, but as long as he is the president, then they're not going to be coming back to the G20 and we're not going to be lifting the sanctions and Russia's not going to be able to return to the community of civilized nations. And I think that's a statement that the vast majority of Americans and frankly, the vast majority of people around the world would support. So the conversation that Mark and I are having here is about what to do once Russia is defeated. Note that Danny said once Russia is defeated, not if Russia is defeated, once Russia is defeated, because that is an objective that is within sight right now. That's exactly right. And that's the conversation I think we need to be having. That is the moment that we are quickly approaching. And it would be nice just this one time if, in fact, we had an idea in place about where we were headed, 
once that comes to pass. That's the reason why we invited an old friend of both of ours, Ambassador Kurt Volker, to join us on the podcast. He was actually the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations between 2017 and 2019. And in 2008, 2009, he was the United States Ambassador to NATO. He's a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's a managing director at the BGR Group. What he really is, is one of the best thinkers and one of the best friends, I think, to freedom and independence for Ukraine. A perfect person to talk to today. Here's our interview. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Mark. Danny. So we're now in week five of the war in Ukraine. And for the first several weeks, like millions of Americans, I woke up every morning and the first thing I did was look to see if Ukraine was still standing, right? And we've all been inspired by President Zelensky's leadership and by the courage the Ukrainians have in standing up to the Russians. And then we heard that they were slowly encircling Kyiv and the siege of Kyiv never happened because of the Ukrainian resistance. So as some of us are starting to ask a simple question, it's not now so much a question of can Kyiv survive, can Ukraine survive, but Could Ukraine win? Yes, I think absolutely. In fact, I would turn it around just to think how this works. Russia cannot win. There is no way that Putin can take the territory of Ukraine and hold it. They haven't been able to get to the major cities, as you've said. They're able to lob long bombs, and they are able to destroy apartment complexes and target civilians, but they can't take and hold the country. So in the end, by definition, then Ukraine wins. Ukraine survives. Now, it's going to be bloody. It's going to be catastrophe for civilians. The Russians have the ability to keep killing people for a long time, but they can't destroy Ukraine. So that's the fundamental thing here. And I don't know if you saw this or not. I actually wrote this up in January before the war started. Here's why Ukraine will win. And the corollary to that is why the U.S. has to help Ukraine now. Because if we come to this conclusion that Ukraine is going to win, then we should not be holding back any support for them whatsoever. Russia is going to lose this war. They're going to have a terrible time. And we should be helping the Ukrainians early and often so that we minimize the casualties and increase their chances of greater success and less destruction. So, Kurt, first of all, that was an incredibly prescient piece. The Ukrainians are meeting with the Russians in Istanbul right now. There was a news flash. We're recording this on Tuesday morning in D.C. There was a news flash that the Russians have decided basically to pull back, what are their words, drastically reduce, quote unquote, their assault on Kyiv where they are stalled. And that jibes exactly with what you're saying, which is that they're now trying to conserve their forces in order to focus Mm -hmm. on areas that they previously held. What outcome should we be looking for here? What is victory for Ukraine other than survival and defeat for Russia look like? Right. Well, before I answer that, first rule of thumb is never believe anything the Russians say. So the fact that they said that they are (laughs) pulling back from Kyiv and consolidating the East, let's see if it's really true. Because the thing you do when the Russians speak is ask yourself, why are they saying that? And I think they are saying it to see if it causes the Ukrainians to let down their guard somehow or cause the West to let down our guard somehow. So let's just assume that they're going to keep fighting for now. 
that being said, what I think has happened is the Ukrainians have stopped the advance. The Russians cannot advance on the ground anymore. They have cut off the supply lines, and now they're targeting the Russian forces with pretty good effectiveness where they're stuck. And so the Russians are having to pull back and regroup. And I think that's a good thing. We should not be satisfied with Russia regrouping in the eastern part of Ukraine and then just sitting there. They need to get out of Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians will be the first ones to say it is not for us to tell them what to think. But they will say, not now. After you've bombed our cities, killed tens of thousands of people, you've raped our women, you've destroyed our economy, Prime Minister today estimated a trillion dollars in damage. They're not going to accept Russia remaining in Ukraine, at least not in the East. The only thing I can imagine is an agreement to disagree over Crimea. Ukraine could conceivably tell Russia, we're not going to take Crimea back by force now. But other than that, I think they're going to insist on Russian forces leaving the country. And I think when that happens, then you can say, okay, now there's a settlement. So here's the thing, Kurt. I think the Biden administration has strategically gotten this wrong at every level. They first thought, like everybody did, well, Putin's not crazy enough to invade. And he's not actually going to do it despite his rhetoric. And so they didn't impose sanctions preemptively. They didn't arm the Ukrainians. They could have sent the MiG-29s before the war started and no one could have objected, right? And then Putin invades. And then everybody assumed looking, we had Fred Kagan on the podcast, and he said, just looking on paper, force on force, there's no way that Ukraine can withstand the Russian military assault. And so they gave them some weapons, but it was more to delay the inevitable, right? And now we're in a situation where we now realize not only are we not delaying the inevitable, they can actually defeat the Red Army. They can actually drive them out. Have we adjusted our strategy to a strategy of actually defeating Russia? No, no, we haven't. And in fact, I have yet to hear anybody in the US or anywhere in Europe use those words, defeat Russia. No one's talking about defeating Russia. No one's talking about victory. They talk about supporting and supplying the Ukrainians. And what we need to be considering is that this war goes on for some time. It has tilted in Ukraine's favor and can continue to tilt that way. And we will have to have a, uh, a long-term plan for a sustained support and supply of Ukraine, both foodstuffs, humanitarian goods, medical supplies, as well as arms. And I don't see that happening yet. It's a lot of ad hoc. We just had a NATO summit on Thursday last week, and it was striking how NATO talked about defending itself and didn't talk about doing anything for Ukraine. I think there's a lot there that NATO needs to come back to. For example, why doesn't NATO establish a clearinghouse for receiving Ukrainian requests for support, farming it out to all allies, making sure that requests are matched with donations or procurement, and then assuring its delivery to Ukraine? This is a perfectly good NATO function and doesn't cross this red line that the administration has set of putting U.S. or NATO troops on the ground. It's just a matter of doing a better job of doing the supplies. We have, as you said, MiG-29 aircraft. We have USA-10s. We have S-300 air defense systems. We have anti-ship systems, all of which we should be providing to the Ukrainians as expeditiously as possible. So there's a lot more that we could be doing that we have not yet done. And we have not begun to consider that the end of the war may look very different than what people thought it was going to be. The end of the war will be an exhausted Russia 
maybe with Vladimir Putin, maybe without, and a Ukraine that is still an independent sovereign state and a perspective that they have earned a place in the EU and NATO. So rather than looking at this and shuddering, we should be looking at this as this may be the final throws in a authoritarian, aggressive regime in Russia. And it may end up creating a situation that will finally create a Russian reconciliation with its actions. So you lay out all of these things that we could be doing. And one of the most striking things to us as this war has continued now well past a month is to watch the fact that, particularly here in Washington, the seriousness of the administration is a real lagging indicator. In other words, they didn't want to transfer weapons. They didn't want to impose full sanctions. They didn't want to cut off Russian oil, both The demands were made by Zelensky very persuasively. Even Congress was there. Even the American people in polls were there. But only then did the administration get there. And I think what you're saying about NATO is that that's basically the same story. But here's the question. Why? Well, I think that there is this boogeyman out there. If we do X, it'll create World War III. And I think we have to get over that and say, no, it won't create World War III. We can escalate. The Russians don't want us to join this fight. So they're going to do everything possible to avoid World War III as well. Nobody wants to see a nuclear exchange. We should be setting some of the lines here instead of being afraid to do things because, oh, well, what if Russia then considers that we're at war with Russia? We can control that. And there are things that are off the table for now, such as a no-fly zone, that I think we could be coming back to if they keep bombing these cities and these civilians, where we can define, here's how a no-fly zone in this instance, different from Iraq and different from Libya or wherever, this is how it would work here, limited in scope and geography, limited to humanitarian purposes, limited in rules of engagement. But if Russia attacks us, then we would fire back. Those sorts of things are off the table again now. But as you said, we said all of these things we wouldn't do. We wouldn't do SWIFT sanctions. We wouldn't do Nord Stream 2 sanctions. We wouldn't provide stingers. And then we did. And I think we are going to be facing more examples like that where this goes on. We are appalled at the casualties that the Russians are inflicting. And we keep reaching for ways in which we can do more. So President Biden just announced this $800 billion package with 800 more Stinger Mm -hmm. missiles and all the rest of it. Zelensky said the other day, we need 500 Stingers a day. There seems to be a disconnect between what Ukraine needs and what this administration is providing. Yeah, I'd say that's true. But let me also say that every country is looking at what we can give them out of our existing stocks right now. And we are just as everyone else is trying to balance what do we need for ourselves to feel like we're safe and how much can we give to the Ukrainians. And all of this money that's being promised, I think the Congress has passed $3 billion or is about to pass $3 billion, one or the other. All that's going to do is backfill. It's going to do procurement of systems yeah. to go back into our stock, which is great. But that means that we should be providing as much as we can. And I think this is where you're going with your question. We're doing a lot, but when we look back at this, And Ukraine is staring at us all bloody and dusty and asking, why didn't you help us more? I think we're going to feel a little bit ashamed that we didn't do everything we could. The MiG-29s still haven't gone. How would you get them there? What's the solution to getting those planes to the Ukrainians? 
And do they actually need those planes? Because the Ukrainians say they do. Our military says they don't. Who's right? We should pay attention to the Ukrainians. They're the ones fighting. They're the ones that have defeated the Red Army or are about to. They're the ones who say we can use them. We should trust the Ukrainians on that and say, you've got the pilots. You've flown these aircraft before. Take them. How to get them there? Let the military guys figure that out. They're in Poland. They have a border with Ukraine. Fly them in, drive them in, whatever you need to do. The Poles were looking for top cover from us politically because they don't want to be exposed uniquely as possibly being targeted by Russia. And they're looking for backfill F-16s or something to be temporarily there. These are not unreasonable demands or expectations from the polls. And I hope that now in the wake of the president's visit, outside the cameras, outside the limelight, we are sitting down and talking to the polls and getting this right. I hope we're doing that. Well, so do I. I don't have much confidence that we're doing the right thing, but fingers crossed that behind the scenes, the right things are happening. So, Kurt, let me just talk a little bit about what a defeated Russia means. My biggest fear about this is that, God willing, once this is distorted and the Russians stop shooting at civilians in Ukraine, there's going to be a rapid de-escalation on the part of the West. In other words, there's going to be a rapid lifting of sanctions and that the consequences for Russia just aren't going to be as serious as they ought to be. And we're throwing around war crimes, crimes against humanity. But the general instinct of the world community, if there is such a thing, is in fact to back down very quickly when it comes to cases like Russia's. What do you think the right outcome is for how to handle Putin and his ambitions for Russia? Well, the first thing is to make clear that the sanctions that have been put in place, which are devastating the Russian economy, will remain in place as long as Putin is in power. I don't think Biden made a mistake by saying Putin has to go. He's absolutely right. He said what we all know. Exactly. (laughs) And so we should put that out there in terms of sanctions as well. As long as he's in power, he led Russia into this war. He is personally responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people and the creation of 10 million displaced persons. And that number is going to grow a trillion dollars of destruction in Ukraine. He's personally responsible for this. And we will not deal with Russia as long as he's in power. That needs to be clear. We need to pursue the war crimes. And remember, war crimes are not just a collective thing that you know you hold Russia accountable. Every individual in the chain of command who is responsible for authorizing and overseeing crimes against humanity or war crimes in the conduct of the conflict, they need to be held personally accountable. I don't know. I'm not an international lawyer what the best mechanism is. I thought the one that worked the best in the past was the the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. We should have possibly a special tribunal just for this war, for Russian war crimes. But let the lawyers sort that one out, whatever is best for them. But those are two consequences that need to stay. The third is we need to be clear that Ukraine is not only going to survive, but we're going to help rebuild Ukraine. It's going to be a successful, independent European state. We'll have its sovereignty. We hope it has all of its territory. It is something that is a U.S. interest, a European interest, a NATO interest. We cannot allow Russia to extinguish a sovereign European state. And at the end of this, there will be a successful Ukraine. I think those are things that we need to be saying out loud and forcefully to set the expectations, set the expectations in Russia, set the expectations in Ukraine, and even among our European friends and allies in the EU and NATO. 
And on top of that, we'll make Russia help pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine with those seized assets. It's another reason why not to lift the sanction. Every yacht that's been seized should be sold and the money given to Zelensky to rebuild this country. Yeah, I think there's something there. Again, you'll have lawyers talk to you about what you can do and what you can't do and why and what precedent it sets for other things. But the principle that you're setting is we should start from asking ourselves how much of these $450 billion or $500 billion, whatever it is, in seized Russian assets, how much of that can be directed towards rebuilding Ukraine? And the answer ought to be as much as we possibly can. You mentioned the kerfuffle over Biden's speech. What do you make of that? He ad-libbed those comments, which I thought were perfectly fine. And then yep. the White House suddenly, they put unnamed spokesman starts saying, well, what he meant to say was that Putin cannot exercise power over Ukraine and the region, which is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, it's clearly not what he meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's clearly I mean, not what nothing- he meant. There was nothing wrong. He didn't say that we're going to march on Moscow and overthrow Vladimir Putin. He said that Putin should be gone. If anything, they should have turned around and said, and by the way, it's going to be up to the Russian people to decide and free Navalny, the opposition leader that you put in jail so that the Russian people can choose their leader in a free and fair election. Why are they so scared of their own shadow that the president says something as simple and as universally agreed to as that Putin should go and they start panicking? Yeah, I'll tell you, I think what happened is the effort to put up buffers and to correct misstatements of the president has become reflexive. So as soon as he went off script and said an additional sentence that might have been controversial, they just leapt in and said, oh, no, 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 he didn't mean that. Instead of thinking, saying, actually, maybe he did mean that. And actually, maybe that's a good thing to say. But it's just a reflexive response now because it's part of the system now of course correction because they anticipate misstatements or mistakes. Look, I think you're exactly right that the White House has gotten into an almost reflexive habit of correcting the president. And what was interesting to me was the president actually came back afterwards and said, no, I did mean that, which should have been understood as a rebuke. I just want to stick with the question that I asked you before, which is, okay. Before you leave that, Danny, before you leave that, I'm here in Prague and was talking with people about this kerfuffle as well. And one thing that we can't underestimate is the appearance it creates of a president who's not in charge. When he's out speaking in Warsaw, the American president speaking abroad, and his own staff comes out, so he didn't mean that, this is what he means. It creates a perception of weakness and not being in charge, which is very damaging. I think that's absolutely vital. This White House and the president's staff seem to actually believe what many people in Washington have been suggesting, that the president is not entirely compostmentous. But what they're doing is just underscoring that they too are uncertain about the president. It's absolutely disastrous. And you know they did it again just now, yesterday. He seemed to suggest that we're helping train Ukrainian troops in Poland. And the White House immediately denied that that was the case. It boggles the mind. And for the record, I don't think the president is mentally challenged here. I think he is on top of what he wants to do, may agree or disagree with what he wants to do, but I think he's on top of it. And I think it's not serving him well. No, I agree with you entirely. I wish his staff believed that. But here's the question as we brought in the aperture, and this is my exit question. Okay, we keep the sanctions on Russia until they pull out of Ukraine, until they start behaving properly. We set a number of other red lines, perhaps, 
I hesitate to use that term, but we set a number of other red lines. But the reality is that Vladimir Putin is not just a danger in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin now has a base in Syria. He's got a new, admittedly subservient, but still agreement with Xi Jinping in China. Even if they lose in Ukraine, he represents a threat to us. As Mitt Romney suggested low these many years ago, what ought we to be doing? Should we, in fact, have a policy that seeks to restore democratic governance to Russia? Yes, I think we do need that, but there's ways to go about that. And first thing is we have to make clear that Putin is the problem. Our problem is not with Russia or the Russian people. In fact, we understand the mess that they are living through domestically. And it's because of Vladimir Putin and the way he has created this authoritarian regime, which just extracts from the country. So we have to be clear that our problem is Putin, not people. Second thing then is because of Putinism and what he's doing, you have to establish and, you know, why not use the old word of containment? We have to contain Russia's ability to exercise power and threaten people militarily or otherwise around the world. We're going to have to do that as long as he's in power, as long as the Russian regime is acting the way that it is acting. They need change and they need a kind of conceptual or philosophical reconciliation with their own deeds, much as Germany did after World War II. And I think that's possible at the end of this war, because when the Russian people learn what Putin actually did, I think they're going to be horrified. So I think we need to actually see a democratic Russia or a a change in Russia. We also need a reconciliation because I think at the end of the day, the Russian people want to live in a normal, prosperous, secure country. And they need to see what Putin's denial of information, authoritarian rule and aggression in the world has produced for them. Exit question for me, Kurt. What does victory look like in Ukraine at the end? So I'm seeing, watching on CNN and Fox, people with maps of Ukraine drawing new borders, and maybe we they partition it this way and they give them Donbass and all the rest of it. Should we accept anything less than the status quo ante bellum, that the territory of Ukraine is intact as it was? How does Ukraine look at the end of this? What does victory look like? One answer to that is at the end of this, I would like to be able to go to Donetsk and sit in a coffee shop and talk with people who suffered under the crazy occupation for eight years and say that I'm glad to see they're part of Ukraine again, and now this place can rebuild. So that's what I would like to see. Now, that means that it's not the status quo before February 24th. It's the status quo before 2014. I can see a agreement to disagree over Crimea, where the Ukrainians say we are not going to take Crimea back by force. But the Russians ought to be out of Donbass. And all of that part of Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, should be reintegrated. It was destroyed by the Russians over the last eight years. People there fled. You know, The pre-war population in that region was 4 million, and now it's 1.5 million before the current war. We need to let people go home, rebuild. That's got to be back in as part of Ukraine now. I think the Russians should not even keep that or be rewarded in any way for this aggression. I agree completely. And I really hope that we're able to build enough of a consensus here in the United States within NATO that those ought to be our ambitions. We really do need not simply to contain Russia, but to help Ukraine liberate at least those territories that were taken post-2014. From your mouth to God's ears, Kurt. Yeah. And one final thought on that, too, because we're talking about Ukraine. 
This is the opportunity at the end of this war to eliminate the gray zones in Europe. No countries should be living in fear of a future Russian invasion again. So Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, we'll see where Belarus ends up if it gains its independence again. We need to be looking out for those countries. I lied. Last question. Does Ukraine end up in NATO and the European Union after this is all over? I think so. I think so. Frankly, if you're thinking that you may have to fight a war someday, who wouldn't want Ukraine on your side? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> so uh, true. <laughs> the joke in Kiev today is that uh, after the war, NATO can apply to join Ukraine. Exactly. That's more like it. And on the EU as well, we should be looking at this not as, oh my God, Ukraine is not ready. We should be saying, okay, this is a huge opportunity now as Ukraine rebuilds, to coin a phrase, build back better, put in place the right kinds of reforms, clean up the judiciary, get a economy structured around the EU legal structures for the economy. And they are a resource-rich country energy, oil, gas, renewables, uh, minerals, etc. The EU should be looking and salivating at the idea that Ukraine could become a member. Let's hope everybody has some vision and some courage in the coming days and months. The Ukrainians are really a great example to us. Let's learn some good lessons from them. Kurt, we know you're in an airport lounge. You've been going to a funeral. You're on your way to meetings. So thank you so much for making the time for us. This has really been terrific. Just an excellent assessment of where we ought to be going. And Mark and I are both really grateful. Well, I'm grateful to both of you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Travel safely. Danny, I like the way Kurt ended this. I think that I want to see Kurt having coffee in a uh, cafe in Donetsk at the end of this process. And I think that that is an achievable goal, but it's only an achievable goal if we have a policy to make it so. Because the Ukrainians have the will, that is absolutely clear. They don't have the means unless we give it to them. And we are not on a victory footing in our strategy right now. We are in a prevent Russia from victory footing, but we are not on a Ukraine wins, Russia loses footing in terms of what we're providing the Ukrainians. The fact that we won't give them the MiGs still We're three podcasts in since we started talking about this. The MiGs are still sitting on a tarmac in Poland. The fact that Biden is giving them 800 stingers when Zelensky says we need 500 stingers a day. And oh, by the way, we also need 500 anti-ship missiles and anti-tank missiles a day. We are not giving them the armaments to prevent Russia from winning. And that is a very, very big distinction that we need to change in our strategy. That's right. And what I'm really, really hoping is that Congress will provide the necessary leadership. You know, we had Jimmy Panetta on a couple of weeks ago. I was really proud to hear the leadership from Congress on a variety of these questions, whether it was certain sanctions against Russia, whether it was not buying Russian oil, whether it was providing the necessary armaments to the Ukrainians. But we can't keep plotting through our national security strategy like this, desperately hoping that some person is going to stand up in Congress and urge the president to do the right thing. One of the things that I like about Joe Biden, and there aren't that many things I like about Joe Biden, but one of the things that I do like about him is that he has made the moral case for democratic leadership, for freedom in the world, for American leadership. Now, once again, I don't think that his administration agrees with him about the need for that, but we need to actually stand up and think about how it is that we isolate these adversaries, not just in Russia, but in Beijing, in Pyongyang, in Tehran. We actually need, as we had during the Cold War, a strategy 
to eventually eliminate these people from leadership, eliminate their influence in the world, eliminate their ability to threaten their neighbors and to threaten us. And we're not even one step towards that strategy. The, the first step in that broader strategy is to win in Ukraine, because that will set in motion a lot of things beyond Ukraine, just as defeat in Ukraine and Russia's victory in Ukraine would have had cataclysmic consequences around the world that we've talked about on this podcast. There's a complete divide between what the president says and what his administration is doing. This whole kerfuffle about the speech is symptomatic of the broader problem with their Ukraine policy, which is why did they try and walk back what Biden said? Because they were afraid it might provoke Putin. Right. It's the same reason why we didn't arm the Ukrainians and impose sanctions before the war. It might provoke Putin. It's the same reason why we haven't still haven't provided the MiG fighters to Ukraine, because it might provoke Putin. It's the reason why they talk about this is an offensive system and this is a defensive system, which is a distinction without merit in the military world, because they're afraid of provoking Putin. We got to stop worrying about provoking Putin. One of the things that Kurt said, which I thought was incredibly interesting and true, is that Putin doesn't want war with NATO. He can't even defeat Ukraine. How is he going to defeat the NATO alliance in the United States? He doesn't want that. So we have to stop worrying about what will provoke Putin as if he wants to start a war with us. And as we're looking for a pretext to do it, he doesn't want to start a war with us. He's got enough problems. He can't even take Kiev. Why would he want to get us involved? So we have to stop worrying about how Putin will react and start focusing on defeating Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. We should not be forcing the Ukrainians to cut some kind of deal that partitions their country in any way that gives Putin any territory whatsoever, any land. He should be sent home with his tail between his legs. And that will have consequences for all the things you talked about. That'll have consequences for the consequences of victory will be deterrence in Taiwan. It'll be deterrence against Iran. It'll be a pushback for dictators everywhere if that happens. And we got to stop worrying about whether Vladimir Putin is going to be mad about it. I think I can sum up what you just said by saying there is no substitute for victory. That should be our aim. That should be the root of our strategy. That should be the spirit that animates us everywhere possible. That doesn't mean war. It doesn't even necessarily mean sanctions. It means a conviction about how the world ought to look and how we ought to lead and who we need to help. That is our prime directive here in America. And that is the prime directive of the president of the United States, the national security and the well-being of the American people. We need to work a lot harder in that direction. It and with should that, be the prime directive. It should be. It should be. It should be. Inshallah. That is what we need to work towards. And we need to have a commander in chief who is firm in his conviction that that is the direction in which we need to head. Hey, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being with us today. Don't hesitate to write to us, share your thoughts, hopes, dreams, complaints, and uh, subscribe to our Substack as well. Look forward to seeing you next week. And our podcast. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Okay. Take care. (laughs) Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. 